Before I go any further, let me pray over this word. And I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to minister it to anyone that's viewing this on Facebook Live right now or anybody hearing it on the recording. So, Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We are grateful tonight to be among the redeemed, the saved, the called out ones. We are thankful to be among those who have been given eternal life. Lord, we thank you that we're crucified with Christ and it's no longer only us who live but you live in us we're grateful to be those who are sons and daughters of God I ask tonight by your spirit you would make this message alive to hearts all throughout the city those who would tune in to Facebook those who would hear the recording this would be alive to them it would impart grace into their heart. It would release strength into the heart and mind to follow Jesus faithfully. And so, Lord, help me to communicate tonight, even though it's an empty room dynamic, minus we got Caleb the helper in the back, but help me to communicate and help us to hear what you're saying tonight. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, I'm going to start off tonight by reading the portion of scripture that we're looking at again this is the prayer of prayers Jesus's lengthy 26 verse prayer tonight we're looking at John 17 verse 9 through 19 so 10 verses last week was verse 1 through 8 and so we pick it up in verse 9 let me read it here again all of the notes are uh, online on our website and if you have a question As I'm sharing, please just comment, and if there are any questions at the end, I'm going to have Caleb run up and see if we've got any. I'd love to continue doing Q&A. We always do a QA and a session at the end of each sermon, and would love to keep that going. If if I say something and you want me to clarify, please uh, do comment. I'd love to uh, clarify that. So John 17, 9 through 19 We pick it up in sort of the middle-ish of the prayer. Jesus is praying to his Father, and he says, I pray for them. He was praying for himself. Now he's praying specifically for his disciples, and they're in the room hearing this. He says, verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 10, and all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Now I no longer, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 13, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Excuse me. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Verse 19, and for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Okay, so that's the scripture. Let me uh, touch on some introductory comments now that we've read that. This is from last week's introductory section. I have much more on this in the notes from last week, but I just want to touch a couple things in review, sort of, and then get into the new content. 
Again, this mini-series on John 17 is more or less a continuation of the Loving Jesus series I did a couple weeks ago, John 14, 15, and 16. We looked at each chapter, one per week. And this is Jesus' longest recorded prayer. He prays a couple times uh, that we have the actual words. I mean, he prays a lot. Uh, He prayed all night. I mean, imagine having that uh, written down. But but we don't have many times where Jesus actually says things. But of all the prayers he says, we have this one being the longest. So it's not only Jesus' longest recorded prayer, it's the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament and one of the longest in the whole Bible. So it's very significant. It was a public prayer. Uh, This was not intended to be secret. It was intended to be heard or else... We couldn't have known what was said, so it was heard by people, namely John, and then John wrote it down. And really what this could be thought of is a a deeper look into Jesus' heart. Because he is more fully expressing the friendship he wants to have with his disciples and the disciples to have with one another. He is not just teaching anymore. He is, I mean, he he says things that are very significant, but when he wants to say the most important things, he prays them. So he didn't just teach it, he prays these truths. And so there's this added level of significance because it's God asking God to do something, not just informing his disciples, but informing them by means of, letting them in on his prayer life. So it's massively significant. And there's towering theology throughout this one chapter. Uh, Many scholars and commentators and, and theologians call this the Holy of Holies, this passage. I mean, there are so many... uh, so much commentary and books written on this one chapter alone. And it's an endless minefield of... Uh, uh, or an endless uh, treasure uh, trove, (laughs) that's what I'm trying to, an endless field of jewels is kind of where I'm going there. Not a minefield. It'll blow you up in the good sense, I guess, is what it is. So I wanted to just mention that, some introductory comments. And also it's important to realize that this is not Jesus giving his father new information. I mean, this is, this isn't like Jesus saying, hey, I got something you need to consider, Father. This is, this is from Jesus' heart, but the Father knows it. It's, it's a heartfelt prayer, but it's mostly Him helping His disciples come closer into His heart by hearing His very heartbeat. He begins to open His heart in prayer and lay it out there before His Father intending for his disciples to hear and for them to go, oh, oh my gosh, that, that, that's, that's a weighty prayer. And so what it means for us is, is obviously scriptural, so he intends for this to be heard and for it to become scriptural so that we can incorporate it into our prayer life, the, the truths related to these 26 verses. Now, I asked last week, and I'll ask it again tonight. Imagine if the church today, globally, or imagine even if your local church or the church in our city looked like the answer to this prayer. And the good news I have tonight is there will come a day before Jesus returns, and I'm hoping sooner than later, I'm hoping our generation There's coming a day where the church will look like the answer to this chapter because Jesus gets his prayers answered. When Jesus prays something, when God prays something to God, God answers God. And so we're going to see John 17 in the church of central Illinois, in the church of America, in the church throughout the nations, this high priestly prayer, this holy of holies communication between the Son and the Father, the second person of the Trinity and the first person of the Trinity, it's going to happen, and we're going to experience it. Now let's go down to 
Number three, significant themes in John 17, 9 through 19. Again, these notes are online if you're listening through Facebook or the, the recording. These notes are at gphop.org teachings. And as I'm going through, if you have questions, just comment in the comment section and I'll try to get to them at the end. We're going to break this down pretty much verse by verse. So in verse 9, we see that Jesus is focusing, he's focusing his prayers on his disciples. Verses 1 through 8, he's praying for himself. Verses 9 through 19, he prays for his immediate disciples. And then after that, we'll look at next week, he prays for future disciples, which would include us. So he's focusing in on his disciples. And it's not that we can't pray for the world. He says in here, I'm not praying for the world. It doesn't mean we can't or shouldn't. He's simply zeroing in so as to emphasize the importance. I'm praying for you. I want you to know that I'm praying for you. And he's teaching us a lesson to pray for those in our inner circle. So, for example, in Luke 23, 34, Jesus is dying on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. He's praying for unbelievers. So he does that. But in this moment, he's, he's locked into the Father's heart, and he's just praying for just his uh, immediate circle there. Now, like Jesus... We need to pray much for those that God brings closest to us. That is a privilege of influence and leadership. When God brings people close to us, whether for a season, short or long, when God brings people close, whether it's family or coworkers or staff or uh, people who uh, just want to glean from us from a season, those people who are brought into that inner circle, that's a a position of prayer that we are given. And so look at influence, not just as cool, that guy listens to me, look at it as I am responsible to pray for that individual and to carry them in, in intercession in essence. So, you know, there are people who are dear to us that are sort of like our 12 or our, our three within the 12. Again, it's your spouse, it's your kids, top leaders, close friends, maybe that one neighbor. The people that the Lord brings close, that's a responsibility to pray. And so that's what the Lord's communicating right now. Um, not just cool, you guys follow me around, but, but no, I pray for you. God prays for his disciples, and we need to walk in that as well. So pray for those that the Lord brings close. And also this verse is a leadership principle. The Lord is talking about how those that you've given me, they're yours. So Jesus recognizes the people you've given me to lead are actually yours, God. And that's the way we need to view it. The people that the Lord brings close to us, they're God's, not ours. The people in our work or our ministry or our family, we don't own them and we don't get to make every decision in their life. No, they're God's people. They're not my people or your people. That's very important for leaders to understand. God's people are God's people. We have no ownership. We have uh, absolutely no right to limit their self-determination or make them feel uncomfortable if they want to go to some other ministry or work someone somewhere else or do something that we don't fully understand. We have no right to intervene other than use appropriate influence and prayer. We need to treat people respectfully with open hands and... In the end, that's the best way to lead. So again, they're God's people. They're not our people. And we, we make sure they feel freedom and not control through our leadership. And that's sometimes hard because leaders, I mean, someone like myself, we're motivated to give vision and to move people a certain direction and in essence exert some level of control 
or or influence. I know control is not a, a, a fun word, but uh, you know most leaders they have a strong sense of vision. They have a direction. They feel God's taking people, and so they want people to move there. And we have to remind ourselves time and again as fathers, as parents, as pastors or leaders or house of prayer leaders, um, you know, maybe you're a manager or supervisor, whatever your context, that person under you or around you, they're not yours, they're God's. And so we simply faithfully steward for a season, maybe they're with us for a season, we give all we can to them, and they're free to do their own life. Let's go to verse 10. Verse 10, Jesus continues to pray, and he speaks of being glorified in his disciples. That's important. It's important to know that Jesus is glorified in his disciples. Jesus gets glory out of them and out of us. Caleb's giving me signals back there. We got mom on there? Okay, good, good. Good to see you, mama. Mama's tuned in. Now, I just want to make a quick point about this, is that Jesus is, in essence, again, teaching his disciples, hey, um, you know, be listening in to my prayer here, but he's basically telling them how you live can give me glory. And so I want to say that to us tonight, how you live and how I live can give God more or less glory depending on how if we live obedient or not obedient. And I want to give God all the glory through my life. And so we seek to obey and do what He tells us to do because we want to give Him all the glory. Now let's go to verse 11. Jesus is now speaking of leaving and coming to the Father. really interesting part of his prayer. I'm no longer in the world. He's already kind of mentally, you know, he knows he's going to the cross. He knows what's after the cross. So mentally, he's going there. He's saying, I'm no longer in this world, but but they are. And so he, he prays that the disciples would be kept. He uses the word, Keep them. Keep through your name. This is significant what he begins to pray and unveil here. He prays that the disciples would be kept by the Father, which speaks of a keeping them loyal or faithful to Jesus and the mission Jesus gives them. It speaks of them remaining steadfast in their faith, steadfast in their apostolic witness and in their leadership capacity to be fully faithful, but not just by gritting their teeth, by means of a revelation of God. Jesus praying that that there would be this true, fuller revelation that they would walk in. And the description that Jesus uses, he uses the term Holy Father. Jesus says in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them, keep through your name. And this is the only time in the entire Bible, the only time that Jesus uses this phrase, the one time in the Bible where God is referenced as Holy Father. You know, Jesus taught his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father, which is heavily emphasized in most teaching about prayer. But Jesus taught Holy Father. So he taught both. And I think this is a very significant two words because what he's saying, in essence, is keep them loyal to me by revealing this twofold idea that you're holy, that you're almighty and transcendent in power, but you're also a father, you're tender and you're paternal. If you separate those, you get a powerful God that needs to be obeyed, but but we don't know his heart. And over here, you have this tender father, but we don't know if, you know if he demands obedience, but you put Holy Father together, you get a robust theology 
that it's emphasizing this is God. He is transcendent. He is almighty. He is powerful. And he's your Abba Father that has tender affection for you. And this is what Jesus is praying. Connect those two and walk in a revelation that you're serving God, this transcendent, powerful being who is also your father who has affection for you. And if you pursue that revelation, you'll be kept throughout your life. You'll be a faithful witness. And that's what he's, in essence, praying there. There's a twofold emphasis there. He also tags on to that, that they would be unified. Unified, there's such strength. When God's people, when ministries are within a ministry, when hearts are knit together in love, when hearts are knit together in the revelation of who the Father is and His holiness, when there's that fear of God and that love of God that knits a community together, there is so much power in that community. Those are the types of ministries that connect other ministries. Those are the types of leaders that connect other leaders when they walk in this revelation that motivates unity. It's powerful. There's vast, vast strength when hearts are knit together. And, and as a sub-point to that, we value unity to the degree we see God's unity, which again is the doctrine of the Trinity. God is one, expressed as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. They are united together in one holy trinity in one being. And when we see that unity in relationship, we emulate that in our daily lives and in our ministries and and on the earth. How am I doing, Caleb? Caleb gave me a thumbs up. We have an earnest crowd tonight. All right, I'm going to keep preaching then. Crazy days, but the word of God must be preached Because I believe that what I'm doing here affects the whole region, not just the room or Facebook or or the recording that's on on the MacBook, but there are realities being released. As God's Word goes forth, whether you're preaching to your kids at home or behind a pulpit on in a house of prayer, at a church service, you're making known Christ to powers and principalities, and that's our role as Jesus' church. I go on. Verse 12, Jesus says in His prayer, I have kept your people, I have kept your disciples close to you, Father. He says, I've done that, but there's one... He does acknowledge Judas's demise. In verse 12, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I kept them. None is lost except the son of perdition, Judas. Judas was lost, but because the Bible uh, made clear that there would be one that would be lost, it was a fulfillment of Scripture. So the, the fulfillment of Scripture is, is going to happen. And so it raises a number of theological questions. Did Judas not have a free will? Did, what about this and that? The reality is we believe that God is sovereign. We believe that God is in control. And yet he's not controlling to the degree that Judas didn't have an ability to say yes or no. But he made a decision, and that decision was a fulfillment of Scripture. And so it's a, it's a sobering thought that a man so close to the Lord could be so lost. And I believe one of the reasons that's included in Scripture is to give us warning as Christians that we, we can be that Judas. I mean, it no longer shocks me that Judas was befriended by Jesus. It shocks me that I am because I, I see that there's darkness in there and that could lead me astray. And we all have that old man that creeps up and that we have to slay again and again. Paul spoke of dying daily and we must really take seriously the, the dying daily and the, the, the crucifying of those sins that so easily want to ensnare us. But 
Jesus throws in this heavy word in his prayer and his disciples are hearing this. And it it is grievous that one was lost, according to Scripture. The other leaven, they're secure. They're followers of the Lord, but one one was, you know, was he saved? Was he not saved? Here's, here's my take. He followed the Lord. He was a genuine Jesus follower. Him and Jesus were friends, but he made decisions time after time to uh, make financial uh, misdealings and stole from the money bag and then uh, betrayed the Lord. There was a history of betrayal and deceit that ultimately became, he was no longer a follower, of, a follower of, of Jesus. And so, again, it's tough, but it's instructive that there can be people who they go to church regularly, they come to the house of prayer, they are maybe even on a leadership team, maybe even a pastor, maybe even an apostle. I don't know how this can possibly be, but one of the apostles that the Lord called, he himself was lost. And so don't ever think yourself above anything. If Judas could be lost, walk in the fear of God. If you could be that close to the Lord and hear his teachings for years and still be a son of perdition, it, it, it strikes me as, as wow, if, if, he, if he missed it, man, Lord, I throw myself down at your feet, have mercy on me. And so take seriously, when there's a little bit of compromise creeping into your life, don't think you're above anything. Get that right. Get humble. Again, if... If you can be in Jesus' very inner circle and still be that far lost at the end, oh my goodness. So yes, you can be around Christians all the time, around church, and not be a genuine Jesus follower. If you are genuinely born again, you're never going to be perfect. No one will be. But we reach for maturity, and it's sincere, it's serious. And we often stumble when we're genuinely born again, and sometimes even grievously. The uh, prodigal son grievously squandered a season of his life, but he sincerely repented. And that's the difference between a true Christian and someone just playing a game who's lost, is there is a heart difference. There's a sincerity that when we sin, we are grieved. It's truly grievous and it, and it produces in us a sorrow of a godly nature, Romans speak of. There's a, there's a sorrow. It's not an, a worldly like, oh, man, I, I just feel so bad. No, it's, it's I hurt God and I hurt people and I do want to get this right and I'm going to keep saying that until it's right. Again, there's no perfect Christian out there. There's no perfect leader. But we reach sincerely for maturity and as we continue to reach Week after week, month after month, year after year, we mature. And we love Jesus more. And those sins that used to so easily entangle us, uh, they don't look so great anymore. And we begin to move into greater things than just messing around and compromise. And so I wanted to touch on that uh, a good deal because... The Lord throws that in there. It's kind of like, man, Lord, did you really have to put that in your prayer? But the disciples are listening to this prayer and their hearts are just, whoa. He just called Judas a son of perdition, which is a reference to the title of the Antichrist, which is very heavy. And so again, we need to wrestle. If you're hearing this message and you just don't care, you love your life of compromise, you love your hidden secret sins and and you're just going to keep doing that and playing the charade of church, you're not saved. You're not born again. I mean, that's that's a really serious deception to be in. To be at church all the time around Christians, but but not really care about walking right with God, you're not saved. 
Real Christians are very concerned about maturing and growing. We know that we're not perfect. We stumble a lot. We have to repent. But when we just don't care at all, it's a real red flag and a danger zone. And I run into people like this, you know, how, how close can I get to the line? I've been there and we've all been there. But if we're maturing, we, that only lasts for a season and then we grow out of it. But, you know, when you're 10, 15, 20 years old in the Lord and you're still wondering, where's the line? How, how far can I, how close can I get to sin without sinning? Or how, how close can I get over here to this grievous sin without losing my salvation? If that's the narrative going through your mind, you may seriously not be a Christian. You may be a deceived and deluded person that attends a church service regularly, but you're not a Christian. And so that's something that you might need to wrestle with tonight, and so I want to throw that out there. Okay, let's go on to verse 13. Real quick, remember, we're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, you cannot be a good person and be saved. Okay, I want to be a good person. I mean, it's, it's great to be a good person. It just doesn't get you saved. You understand that? So maybe you're hearing this message on Facebook or maybe you're hearing it on the recording and you value being a good person. Well, again, that's totally subjective. Be a good person, but understand you don't get saved by that. You get saved when you believe Jesus is God and you begin doing what he says and you begin following him and you don't stop following him. That's salvation. Jesus, John the Baptist, and the disciples, the apostles, all preached the same message, repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from your sins and believe Jesus is the way. You do that, you're good, you're in. You keep doing that, you you keep following. You prove yourself a true Christian. The scriptures tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There are seasons where we want to sin and we want to quit, but the fear of God and this spirit of trembling touches our spirit and we say, absolutely not, I'm in. I'm a Christian, I can't do that. Verse 13, I'm going to get to it finally. Jesus continues praying. He goes from this talking of Judas, which is heavy, and then he goes back up into heaven. He lifts the, I mean, again, the disciples are hearing this and they're like, ooh, ouch, Judas, son of perdition, prophesied, that was a fulfillment of scripture, heavy. Then he goes, verse 13, I come to you, I'm coming to you, Father, which is to say that Jesus is not going to just a nebulous theological floating on a cloud reality. He's going back up into a literal place with a real person, his father. Again, we talked about this last week. Heaven's a real place. Heaven will come to earth one day. The earth will be remodeled. And we're going to walk in relationship with a real person with arms and legs and hands and eyes, and we're going to relate to God as a person. And we will be a person. There's so many weird thoughts of what heaven's going to be like, but it's going to be very similar to the, the life we experience now, but at the highest level of perfection. I talked about that more last week. Listen to the part one on the website if you're interested. Jesus acknowledges that going to heaven means going to a person, our Heavenly Father, and He prays that His followers would have what? He prays that they would have joy. Joy. Jesus is not anti-joy. Yes, it's serious business being a Christian. I talked about a quote last week. I believe it was C.S. Lewis that says, Joy is the serious business of heaven. In John 15, 11, Jesus taught that His disciples, if they would obey His commands, they would walk 
in his joy. He says, my joy, uh, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that my joy, that your that my joy, I'm sorry, I keep butchering it. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Full is the word used. So there's these levels of joy. And then Jesus goes ahead two chapters later and prays for there to be joy in their heart. The question I have here is, do you believe Jesus is joyful? Do you follow a glad-hearted king? Do you believe in a God who is happy? Depending on how you answer that question determines how you live your life. A solemn, austere Christian or a glad-hearted, joyous Christian? Not to say we won't be sorrowful. Not to say that we don't mourn at times. But we endure the sorrow in the morning when our heart is glad. And so we don't, we don't mostly live in sorrow and touch gladness one or two times in our life. No, we receive the joy of the Lord into our heart and that helps strengthen us as we navigate the trials and difficulties of life. Some get a really, uh, a really wrong perspective on sorrow and suffering as if it's the end goal. Jesus displayed that it's it's a life of joy on the inside that helps us navigate the difficulties and the trials that will come and deepen our character. Let's go on. We've got a couple more points and then we're going to wrap up. Let's look at verses 14 to 16. This is number 6. Jesus indicates in his prayer as he continues praying that there will be animosity that will come the way of the disciples because they're in the world, but they're not of it. And so they're walking, talking conviction, in essence. Everywhere they go and everything they say has a different spirit on it because they are in the world, but they're not of it. Their spirit's not worldly. And so everywhere they go and whatever they say is of a different order. It's transcendent. It's of the kingdom of heaven. And so it bothers people. People are convicted by their messages and by their lives. And so it produces a reaction that Jesus calls hatred. People hated them, not because they were being jerks, but because they were genuinely different They were born from above. And when we say yes to the Lord, the same transaction takes place. We're no longer worldly. Our spirit is indwelt by God's spirit and we're holy. And so we come across different to people that once knew us as worldly. And some people will be convicted unto repentance. Some people will just be convicted unto They'll just hate you because you're not like them. Don't make it the focus of your life, but Jesus does acknowledge this. And he acknowledges his reality. And then he prays, saying, we know there's going to be animosity. We know people will hate you. And we know there's going to be difficulties related to that. But here's the thing. I'm not going to pray that you get to leave like I do. You're going to stay right here. So he's in essence giving them, heads up guys, I'm leaving, the world hates you, you're staying. Very encouraging prayer, Jesus. Now he does this intentionally because he knows there's going to be rigorous seasons, there's going to be difficulty and there's going to be times where they're going to be like, man, can't we just get out of this? So he, he gives them this prayer. And it's against human nature. It's against even redeemed human nature. Even as a Christian, it's against our nature to consistently endure hardship and persecution. It's, it's not... 
normal to be hated and to just patiently endure that your whole life. That's just not normal. And so it takes the prayer life of God, Jesus praying for his church. I know you will need me praying because you will experience some serious difficulty because I'm calling you to stay here to reach the lost with the gospel, and you're nothing like the world, they're going to try to kill some of you, imprison some of you, some of you will be protected, some of you will die for my namesake, but here's the thing, I know that's hard, and I endured it, and I died, and now I'm out of here, but you're here, and some of you for your whole life, some of you 70, 80 years, and so it's, it's rigorous, and it's not normal or it's not your human nature to endure persecution. So I'm going to be praying. He prays that God would keep them and us, that we'd remain oriented to the ways of Jesus' heavenly kingdom and that we would continue to navigate difficult trials patiently so as to give God the highest amount of glory through our humble life. Again, what he says earlier is that we have the ability to give him glory. And so now he's praying, I, I want you to navigate these difficulties. Some people will hate you and try to kill you. And your, your human nature is going to be to flee and to recoil. But I'm praying that you stay invested and on the front lines. Man, I'd love to get to heaven and, and hear the Lord say, it was hard, but you persevered through all the difficulty and you gave me the most glory that I wanted you to give. I want to add on to this an idea. I want to tag on to number six here. This is related. And this, this applies to kind of what we're going through right now as, as a global church. Because of this pandemic, there's a lot of fear. And so there's this idea of like, Lord, can you just take me out of here? And I just want to be with Jesus. And the Lord says, no, I'm not returning right now. And I'm actually praying that you stay here. You can't leave. This is your mission field. You need to begin to orient your mind that I'm not trying to get you out of here. I want you to finish the work I've given you. And that for some of you may be 100 years of work. Others, 30, 50, 70. But the Lord is giving a strong no, you cannot leave. That's his prayer. That's Guys, brothers and sisters, you're watching this, you're hearing this. God asking God... I want them to stay here on the earth because they have a mission to do. And so don't develop this idea of if I just isolate myself by a bunker 200 yards under the, under the earth and stock it with food, if I just isolate, maybe I can kind of escape what's coming. No, no, no. The church does not isolate Okay, we have a stay-at-home order right now, so we, we obey government. You know, God gives us government to protect us. So we stay at home, but we're not isolated. We still have neighbors. We still have family. We still have people we can call. We're not completely recoiling into escapism now or ever, no matter how hard life gets. The church is always supposed to be a front-lines people, whether it's your, with your neighbors or, you know, uh, whoever God has called you to influence in this season, we must resist any kind of isolation, escapism, or what I'm calling false rapture-related theology, which basically says I'm going to buckle down and be invisible until I get taken out of here when it gets hard. None of that is biblical. I don't know about you, but I just want to be involved in the cool stuff. And if it gets hard, I want to be here. Okay? And, I mean, here's the thing. Everybody's going to die once. Might as well do something epic and then go be with Jesus. 
But these notions that we're going to be raptured before it gets hard, that's not actually biblical. Scripture is very clear that we're going to experience much trial and tribulation. And how do I know that's true? Because we're getting one right now. And you're not being raptured. We go through trials our whole life. You haven't been raptured yet. Don't think for a second that you're going to be raptured before the tribulation. You're going to go all the way through that if the Lord has that for you. There's going to be a whole generation that goes to the very most intense point of redemptive history, faithfully proclaiming the gospel in the most crazy context. And you want to be in that. You don't just want to watch movies about it. You want to live that. Get a vision to live that. And so wherever it's human nature to want to isolate and escape and get me out of here, God. But what we have in John 17, the longest prayer of Jesus, is God asking God, don't take them out. They're going to want to be, but then they're going to remember this prayer that I want them here, and they're going to get through a few trials get deeper character, get fuller revelation, and they're going to see the wisdom of it. And then, by the way, they're going to get to heaven and see that their names are written on the foundation of heaven, and they're going to acknowledge it's worth it. It's worth it, beloved. It's worth it, brothers and sisters, to know we're called to reach out. And again, in this season, we obey our government, okay? There's a stay-at-home order. I'm having a lot of conversations with neighbors. I'm having conversations with pastors over the phone. We have to find a way to advance in this unique time and not buy into escapism. Let's just barricade ourselves and do nothing and hope for the best. No, that that causes us to um, perpetuate a, uh, a, a way of being that sets us up for failure in the future. Excuse me. Okay, let's go on to number seven. We've got to wrap this up. Let's end with verses 17 to 19. We begin and we end with a leadership lesson. Jesus prayed that he lived set apart so that those he influenced would live set apart. So Jesus is saying, uh, sanctify them by your truth. And he says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. Jesus saying, I live set apart so that they live set apart. And as a leader, people aren't going to do what I'm not doing. So if I want to perpetuate something, if I want people to be like Jesus, I got to be like Jesus. And so I got to lay down every temptation to be a hypocrite because I don't want to help influence people to be a hypocrite. And so the Lord's laying out this principle. He's saying, Father, I sanctified myself. I lived set apart. I made decisions to, again, I'm in the world, but I made decisions to not be of the world. And I did that so that they would have this example of a teacher doing it, so they would do it. We must seek to be, uh, I'm sorry, we must seek to be sanctified if we want those within our influence to follow suit. Again, bears repeating, people will not become what we're not living. So maybe you're hearing this and you're a leader. You want so-and-so to do something. You want this person over there to be a certain way. If you're not going to live it, then they don't have an example on how to live it and they won't become it. So be what you want other people to be. You got to be it or no one's going to become it. And ultimately, the people who want everybody to change, but they won't, they're the biggest hypocrites of all. They don't last long. Don't be that. That's what Jesus had such a profound, uh, what's the word? Jesus had a profound angst toward the religious leadership of his hour because they were so deeply entrenched in hypocrisy. They didn't want to lift a finger to do anything, but they wanted people to do all the work. Anyway, we Jesus prayed that his disciples would understand Again, we're closing thought here. Jesus prayed that his disciples would understand that we grow, we become sanctified by knowing the truth. In order to grow, in order to become Christ-like, 
in order to become sanctified, which is it means the process of becoming like Jesus, we do that by, by growing in the knowledge of the truth, by reading Scripture. God speaks to us. We learn it line by line. The more we know the truth, the more we get it in our mind, it gets in our heart, the more we agree with it, the more we become like Jesus. Not just our favorite truths, not just the things in the Bible we like. We have to come into agreement with all of the truth. The stuff we like, the stuff we don't like, the stuff we didn't know, we have to keep reading it, keep praying over it. And the more that we learn the full truth, again, not just the favorite parts of the Bible, all of it, when we, when we come into a, 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 an agreement intellectually and emotionally, we're more free and we're more Christ-like. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Sanctify them by your truth. Make them holy. Make them set apart. Make them like me by means of your truth. And it's your word that's the truth. And so we go to Scripture, which is God's inspired word, 66 books of the Bible, and we go, this is true. And again, the more it gets in us, the more it gets in our mind and our affections, the more we know God and become like God. Amen. Amen. That's John 17, the prayer of prayers, part two. We'll end right there. Brother Caleb, do we have any questions from the Facebook audience? Are there any comments? Here, I might want to help you here real quick. Okay, so no questions on Facebook. Uh, so what we're going to do, we're at 8, 7.58. We're going to just close shop tonight. Uh, this will be posted on Facebook, and then there will be a recording posted on our website, so you can check it out there. Uh, Father, we just bless your word. We thank you. I pray tonight as we close that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, you've sent us into the world. I pray that you would keep us. Holy Father, keep us in your name. Help us to be your disciples. Even during this pandemic, during this difficult time, we're asking that you would use us powerfully to be your church. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Bless those who tuned in. And uh, Lord, keep your people healthy. We ask that you'd bring an end to this COVID crisis in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.